Bill Garblink, and I'm a, a senior advisor here at CSIS, and to make sure you're in the right places as careers in development. Um, and today we have with us Diana Obama. I think, I don't know if you're, her bio is attached to the the uh, announcement or not, but, it, but Diana has spent a lot of time um, <coughs> on Capitol Hill on the Senate side, uh, staff director of a subcommittee, uh, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. I think we first met when you were working in AID and the Office of Transition Initiative. She's uh, done a lot of research outside of those positions, so she's she's one of the real pros on foreign assistance, uh, and particularly on Capitol Hill. And so we're pleased to have you here. We'll I'll turn it over to you, and then when you're finished, I'll moderate for some question and answer. So, thanks. So welcome everybody, and um, I see a few old friends at the table and lots of new friends. Um, so um, as I was thinking about uh, what I would say here today, it occurred to me that the whole story of my career and the whole story of foreign aid could be told as a three-act play. So rather than saying something really profound and comprehensive, I thought I would say something small and personal and leave it to you to connect the dots. If you have questions afterwards about, um, you know, more details about any of the issues I raise or about my career, I'm really more than happy to, to answer them. So Act One opens in the spring of 1985. I am a young research assistant in the office of Senator Paul Sarbanes from Maryland, and he's just been reelected to his second term in uh, the Senate. We don't have computers. Cell phones, blackberries, um, no internet. <laughs> There's not. There are no cameras uh, on, the, on the Senate floor, so we we listen to what's going on on the Senate floor from a little radio that we call a squat box, and we learned the sounds of all the senators' voices. Um, so it's a it's a it's a very different kind of environment where I'm typing all the senators' speeches triplicate and probably I don't even know if you all have seen this but there it's um, like pink yellow and green tissue paper with carbons in between and when you make a mistake or the senator changes the line you have to retype the whole thing because you know you could correct the letter but you can't correct the whole line there and that copy machine is one where the whole top of the machine moves for each page <laughs> takes about 30 to 45 seconds. So um, a very different kind of environment. And in February of 1985, President Reagan uh, sends up his proposed foreign aid budget for the year. And it comes in the form of actual legislation for Congress to act on. Um, and Senator <coughs> Luger, who was then the chairman of the newly the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, actually introduces this legislation as a courtesy to the administration. So it gets introduced in February. In March, we have hearings and markup on the bill. In April, it gets reported out to um, the full Congress. And Jerry Connolly, who some of you may know is currently a member of Congress from Virginia, was then the staff person on the Foreign Relations Committee for the Democrats who handled foreign aid. And my senator, Senator Sarbanes, keeps him very busy working on amendments. At that time, the idea that Senator Sarbanes had was to transfer money from military assistance to development assistance. And poor Jerry was 
up there making all these charts and you know side by sides and you know this all had to be done you know you didn't have like uh, Excel or anything to add it all up so every time this you know column of numbers changes it was redone from scratch <coughs> um, and let me just say there is no shortage of uh, controversial issues to deal with at that time there is uh, apartheid in South Africa and this is just the beginnings of all the um, ideas of the amendments to, to um, disinvest and uh, to uh, you know, penalize South Africa for its, its policies. There's the fight over the uh, aid to the Contras in Nicaragua. 1985 was the beginning of the Mexico City policy that um, President Reagan uh, instituted, which prohibited giving aid to NGOs that uh, performed or counseled abortion with their own money, uh, now sort of more commonly known as the global gag rule. So it's not as if there weren't controversial issues to deal with. Yet the Congress manages to debate and vote on the issues in a very orderly manner. The committee um, reports out the bill to the full Senate. On the floor, there are 47 amendments that are considered and filed. And the bill passes the Republican-controlled Senate in May by a vote of 75 to 19. Overwhelming support for this foreign systems opposition bill. This is a bill that for the most part reflects the wishes of a Republican president and a Republican Senate. This bill then passes the Democratic-controlled House by voice vote. And um, we have a conference in July and by August, the bill has been enacted and signed into law by the president. That, my friends, is the way the legislative process is supposed to work, and that is also <laughs> the last time a party organization was ever enacted. Act two. So now we jump eight years to 1993. Cold War is over. Soviet Union no longer exists. Bill Clinton has just been elected president. Democrats control both the House and the Senate. And in the interim, I've gone off to graduate school, got a master's degree, and I'm working on my PhD dissertation, which kind of sits in a stack on the floor in the basement for a very long time while I go back to work. So while I was away during this period, there had been one last valiant attempt at doing a foreign aid authorization bill. The International Cooperation Act of 19. Passed the House and the Senate by overwhelming margins, went to conference, the conference report uh, passed the Senate, and then in October 1991, the conference report failed to pass in the Democratic controlled House by a vote of 159 to 262. So it lost by a large margin, and the reason was about half the Democrats defected and voted against their own bill. Um, as best we could understand it, they, it was just a rebellion against having to vote for foreign aid one more time. That was the end of that effort to do foreign aid opposition. So the Clinton administration came in, and at, at this time there's very universal agreement that there needs to be reform of foreign aid because the Cold War is over. Um, it, it just, you know, we have a, a, a base legislation of the Foreign Assistance Act in 1961 that seems very outdated. Um, 
And so the staffs of the House and Senate Foreign Relations Committee start getting together and thinking about you know, what this new bill should look like. And uh, Mark Kirk, who is now Senator, um, was at that time my House Republican counterpart. I'm on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee um, as the staffer who handles uh, who handles foreign aid, the, the subcommittee, and Mark Kirk is my counterpart. And we have this sort of uh, road show where we go around to the NGOs to, um, to talk about foreign aid reform. And actually going around to the NGOs at that time really just meant talking to interaction. <coughs> interaction was kind of represented all the NGOs at that, at that point. And we uh, pressured the administration to send us a draft bill it seemed like forever, it was taking them such a long time to put it together, but finally in the um, fall, I mean sorry, in the spring <coughs> of um, 1994, actually February 1994, they sent off a draft replacement for the Foreign Assistance Act. It's called the Peace, Prosperity, and Democracy Act of 1994. So, now honestly, what this bill really is, it's not a, a wholesale reform of our foreign aid program. It's a re Right. We called it a rewrite. It was a rewriting of the Foreign Assistance Act to just streamline it and get rid of what Brian uh, Atwood, the USAID administrator at the time, called Cold War foreign calls, you know, restrictions relating to the Soviet Union and communism and so forth. Um, so the debate really isn't about making aid more effective, uh, but about why we should continue to give aid at all now that there's only one superpower left in the world. So um, as I said, I'm the Democratic Staff Director of the Subcommittee that does foreign aid, and Senator Mitch McConnell is the ranking member of our subcommittee. And he and his staffer, Robin Cleveland, who you know, <coughs> some of us now, um, they're very nice. They don't have a partisan axe to grind, and we work together really well. They didn't fight us on this at all. So. Um, I take the administration's draft and literally lock myself in a hideaway um, for several month period to edit the administration's draft to make it something that we can all live with. We show it to the group, we show it to the administration, there are little nits here and there, but you know, all in all, you know, it's something that everybody can live with and we have our markup at the subcommittee level and um, it gets reported, you know, pretty much without dissent. But Senator Jesse Helms was the ranking member of the full committee at that time. <coughs> we started talking to Senator Helms, who uh, was known then as Senator No. Um, it became clear that what we would have to do to that bill in order to get it past the full committee was more than what Senator Sarmiento was willing to live with. He was, you know, Senator Helms, uh, was known for calling foreign aid um, money down a rat hole, and he just believed the whole thing was a big waste if he didn't want to spend any money on it at all. So um, we decided to kind of stop the process right there. Now, it's, um, it's the fall of 1994, so it's election season. So nobody's really interested in having, you know, votes on foreign aid at this point. The House hasn't actually moved on the administration draft at all. They had some hearings, but nobody was ready to vote. And then uh, we wake up on November, whatever, 6th or whatever it was that year, lo and behold, election day arrived at the Republican Revolution. 
Gingrich, you know, marches in. There's uh, Republican control of the House, Republican control of the Senate, and the contract with America and foreign aid has basically no part in, um, you know, the new agenda. So the whole effort is now vetted. So the lesson that I took from that experience was that you need to be ready when a window of opportunity <coughs> opens. Because we have those two years where there was a Democratic president, House and Senate controlled by the same party, everybody agreed that foreign aid was necessary, but it took two years to get the document ready to move on, and by that point, the window had closed. And it wasn't gonna open again for a very long time. We get to Act Three which is now jumping 15 years to 2009. <coughs> so I left the Senate and gone to USAID, left USAID, gone to Interaction, <coughs> left Interaction, started and stopped my own consulting firm, come back to Senator Sarbanes, left again, went around, traveled the world for a couple of years, pretty much aimlessly, and yes, that was uh, probably the best two years of my life. <laughs> and um, in the intervening years, in the absence of an overall foreign aid reform, what we've seen are smaller foreign aid-related bills enacted. So first, the SEED Act, which provided assistance for um, Eastern, Europe, Eastern Europe right after the, the, the wall fell. Um, the former Soviet Union, known as the Freedom Support Act. We've had PEPFAR and the MCC, and all these different pieces of legislation that are outside the Foreign Assistance Act of 1961, um, and all of which basically um, create institutions, processes, authorities, um, accounts outside of USAID to go around the problems, circumvent the problems <coughs> that nobody was willing to correct by fixing the Foreign Assistance Act. All those, you know, this, this baggage and barnacles and stuff are still there, so instead of fixing them, they've just kind of ignored USAID and started this whole process of, of fragmenting. Um, anyway, Howard Berman is now the chairman of the House Foreign uh, Affairs Committee. He came in in the, uh, the spring of 2008. And he decides that as chairman, one of his big issues is going to be foreign aid reform. And he's going to make one big new push for it. And literally, I'm lying on the beach of Florida and I get a call that there's, there's going to be this big new push on foreign aid reform and can I come back and help you? So, I came in and we basically spent all of 2009 and 2010 working on a total, total overhaul of the Foreign Assistance Act. Um, I had it in my mind that, you know, well, I've done this once before, it's not going to be that hard. I think I actually told somebody that I could rewrite the whole thing during the August recess, which is really embarrassing to admit. Um, but the truth is, as I said, back in 1994, the last time we did this, um, it, it really wasn't shaking up the system or changing the way USA does business. It was just, you know, taking the law and, you know, reorganizing it and cleaning it up a little bit. So the task is much, much bigger this time. And um, there are now hundreds of groups who are interested in the process. And there are also many more people who are invested in the system as it is. And the administration does not have the slightest bit of interest in working with Congress on foreign aid. As a matter of fact, they won't even talk to me about it at all. Um, they, the state and USA will not answer any questions, even about what a particular section of the existing Foreign Assistance Act means. The, 
you know, no help from the lawyers at all about the intricacies. It's all on our, all on our shoulders. Um, and not only do they not help, but the administration actively fights against every <coughs> effort that we made to start the process going to take little baby steps. We had little mini bills to do things like um, improve monitoring and evaluation or require a national strategy for global development. Um, they fought with all their might against this. We had one um, section of a State Department opposition bill that called for, it passed the House, and it called for a quadrennial review of diplomacy and development, the QRDD. At the time it passed, the State Department lawyers told us it was the worst idea they ever heard of and have to be possibly think of doing such a horrible thing. And about a month later, the Secretary of State announced that she was going to do the Quadrennial Diplomacy and Development Review, QDDR, with absolutely no reference to anything that the House said. So um, throughout this period, my Republican counterparts are also banned from talking to me. I mean, to the point where they're not allowed to be seen talking to me in the halls. If we want to discuss this at all, we have to kind of accidentally bump into each other at the, at the soda machine. Um, but they, they can't give me any input, so I don't have any sense of what their priorities are, what's going to fly, what's not going to fly. It's really just all on us to figure this, this whole thing out. And I start, frankly, to feel like an unperson. I don't know how many of you read in 1984, but you know, the people who get erased from existence, and that's sort of what it started to feel like. So, um, we do everything we can to make um, foreign aid reform an open and consultative process. We've got roundtables, we have hearings, we circulate discussion drafts and white papers and ask everybody to be, everybody's invited, the administration's invited, the Republicans are invited, all the NGOs are invited, we send out these mass emails. Um, ultimately, um, we get as much input as we can from the people who are willing to talk to us, which is pretty much just the NGOs, and um, we start working this into a, a, a draft. But it is like deja vu all over again. Um, the Democrats <laughs> lose control of the House in, in the 2010 elections. We haven't quite finished uh, drafting the bill, and we're no longer in a position to schedule a markup. Even had a bill, but we keep laboring along. Um, and uh, finally, in last fall, the fall of 2012, we uh, completed a 923-page piece of legislation called the Global Partnerships Act of 2012. And of course, uh, here's the kicker. In November of 2012, Howard Berman lost his seat. He was, uh, there was California redistricting. He was competing against another liberal Democrat who basically won by arguing to this really cosmopolitan, fairly well-off Los Angeles district that Howard Berman traveled abroad too much, even though he was chairman of the House of Representatives. So that's basically the end of our I don't know if you want to consider my play a tragedy or a farce. <laughs> But I will leave it there, and I'm happy to answer any of your questions. Well, let me, as everybody thinks about what you might want to ask, let me start with a, a, a couple of questions. Can, 
this was going on, I could find it most of the time. So I, <laughs> <You're fine>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was probably good for things at the time, but it was. And so I heard bits and pieces of this, but not much, much detail. If you, in what you wrote to revise the Foreign Assistance Act and sort of bring it to the 21st century, if you had to pick three or four of the most important things, um, what would they be? And sort of a follow-on to that is, was a lot of the opposition of the administration out of the State Department or out of the White House as well, or both, or just the, how did that dynamic so the key issues in the reform, I think, number one would be making it more strategic by restarting a process where you think about the big picture in terms of the global development strategy, but then also country strategies, which had been stopped at USAID until recently. And, I, and let me just say that USAID is actually doing a lot of the things that are in the reform bill. It's not um, the ideas and force the administration to do all kinds of things that nobody thinks is a good idea. I think it represented sort of the consensus of the development community both here in the U.S. and internationally about what kinds of things need to happen to make aid more effective. So um, country, country ownership, which is demonstrated more through this a strategic process in which there's lots of local consultations. And, uh, I think, you know, one element of, of our version of this would is that it's not just with the, the host country government, but you know, with civil society in the in the partner countries. Um, another part is better monitoring and evaluation. Again, um, USAID and MCC really well. MCC, you know, led the charge on this. USAID has really um, made a lot of progress, and we're starting to do some serious uh, monitoring and evaluation. But that stuff had fallen away in the in the interim period; just hadn't been done in years and years. Um, you know, I, I think just kind of getting rid of a lot of um, bureaucratic uh, mumbo-jumbo and, and, and processes that made the, the system much less efficient than it, than it could be. So those are the kinds of things, better coordination um, and integration of various issues um, with each other so that it's, it's not so foreign aid isn't so stovepiped into, you know, different categories of the system that don't, um, that don't work with each other. So those are the, the kinds of changes that, um, that we were talking about making. Um, the administration, you know, I don't think that much, if any of it, was the principle that they shouldn't be doing these things. I mean, I. I don't think there's really any disagreement with their own um, presidential policy directive on global development talks about these same things. So um, I think there are two things. One is they don't like to be required to do anything by Congress, and so um, they'd rather just do it and not have anybody tell them. But the other part of it, and, and I honestly can't blame them on this, Congress is not the place it was in it's a, you know, we, I say we, I'm not there anymore, but I feel it was on the hill on and off for 29 years, so I kind of feel um, I'm a part of it, um, have become a really uh, difficult, partisan institution that's not um, making a positive contribution to the process anymore. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that because I feel a great deal of, uh, you know, of loyalty and institutional 
you know, uh, you know that that's an institution that, that's important, but um, Congress is mostly making a mess of things when it takes things up, and um, if anybody needed convincing, we had um, a markup in July of 2011 of a bill that was initially supposed to be just with a State Department authorization, but one got added to it. This is the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And it was, um, a, a, I think, 32 or 36 hour orgy of cutting amendments. Just one after the next, let's cut aid to this country, to that country, to this region, to that region. By the time we were done, I don't think there's any country in the world left that would have qualified for aid. And it was such a huge embarrassment to the Republicans that basically just died there and they never took it to the Rules Committee. It never, never, nothing ever happened after that. But I mean, it just, it demonstrated that we weren't able to act in a responsible manner. So I understand why the administration doesn't want to work with Congress when we don't show ourselves to be, you know, uh, a reasonable partner. The problem is that the changes that the administration makes internally don't get institutionalized. It's just, it can be, you, you, you change a process today, you can change it back tomorrow. And so nothing, none of the none of the changes that they're making are necessarily going to stick if there's another administrator or another administration. So, open. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> I just to, to reinforce what you're saying. I was in the Hill in the 70s, the late 70s, and uh, it's it's just watching it from the outside. It certainly is a very different kind of place than it was was in those years. And I think it's a tough place to work with. Tough people. In fact, when you were there, we had bipartisan committee staff. Yeah. Those were Mild place to be. Anyway, questions? Yes. Um, yeah, I I thought your discussion of how like politics affect U.S. foreign aid was really interesting, but I was wondering whether like foreign policy starts to affect it, and like namely, I guess the example I'm thinking of will like aid to, like the type and the amount of aid to Pakistan change after the 2014 withdrawal from Afghanistan, and how do those like foreign politics play into the aid process? Um, I think we've always had a situation where our foreign policy priorities, particularly the security issues, are a key factor in determining our foreign aid. So that development is um, is never just about development. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of politics in deciding which countries we give aid to and what kind of aid we give to those countries. And I think a lot of people thought that would change with the end of the Cold War and all of a sudden development would be its own thing and maybe USAID could be an agency that kind of stood on its own and uh, addressed long-term interests rather than short-term, you know, diplomatic and, you know, political priorities. Um, in fact, I think we've almost seen the opposite, <coughs> that um, USAID has become effectively kind of merged into the State Department, even though it exists as, you know, technically as an independent agency. Its, um, its policies and its directions are more and more directed, um, directed by the State Department. And, uh, you know, I think what we're doing in Pakistan and Afghanistan are 
don't we if, if USAID were the one that was coming up with, with what the programs should be, they would look like like something very, very different. Um, the sad part is that the only programs that Congress seems to be really um, united in supporting are the ones that are for the security purposes. And even though there are amendments to cut um, Pakistan, cut Egypt, and so forth every year, in a sense, Israel, Egypt, Pakistan, Afghanistan, that's kind of what ensures that we have any money for foreign aid at all. There's probably not enough people who <coughs> support traditional development and, uh, and humanitarian assistance. And I think maybe President Bush was trying to deal with that when he created the MCC. And that was, I mean, that was the, the, a big, huge new infusion of aid for directly for development purposes. I'm not sure a Democratic president ever could have done that. So, you know, we have to, you don't get a more partisan Democrat than me, but I mean, I have to credit uh, President Bush for both FCC and for PEPFAR in using new resources for explicitly non-security, non-political <coughs> purposes. I was just thinking of years ago, what I wanted to comment, when I was working on the House Foreign Affairs Committee in the 70s, the ranking Republican on the committee I worked with, Ed Dorinsky, for Chicago. And he made sort of the same point, uh, it was for Egypt and Israel, there would be no foreign aid. Because we really don't care about anything else. And I remember going through a briefing, this was during the Cold War, and uh, it was the House Foreign Affairs Committee. People said, are there communists there? Yes. Give them money and support that country. And that's how you would go through the, the list of countries in Africa. Very, very different kind of situation. Yeah. Um, so I had a question about the monitoring and evaluation piece. I think from where I sit, having the quantitative metrics to you know, evaluate a program are really helpful. But we oftentimes hear from the agencies that you know some of these programs can't be measured. There isn't really a quantitative indicator, or the indicators aren't really they're not valuable. Mm -hmm. You know, we're kind of fitting our indicators mm -hmm. to the program. So I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about what are some of the things that you guys looked at in the bill, in the authorization bill, and maybe those are some things that the agencies are already doing, or maybe they're not, or not able to. So what's so funny is that our, none of the legislation was ever prescriptive in the sense of you must monitor and evaluate using this method in this mm -hmm. place. Basically, it was a requirement that they establish a system for monitoring and evaluation. And Certain types of places and certain types of programs are going to have to be evaluated in different ways. You know, maybe a democracy uh, promotion program is going to be different than an immunization program. You, know, you can't use as maybe as quantitative kinds of indicators for certain types of things. And um, we completely recognize that, and we think that the administration should have flexibility to do that. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure I really understand what the problem is, why they don't want to have a system for it. I think you know, the basic problem is USAID and MCC are doing it, and none of the other agencies are. The State Department really is doing no monitoring and evaluation to speak of Treasury, certainly isn't, DOD isn't, and they don't want to be held to the same standards. They, they also argue that security assistance programs are different than development programs, which is also true, but even if you're talking about um, arms sales and you know military aid to Israel. Don't you want to know 
if it's being effective in, in, in maintaining Israel's um, qualitative military edge, if that's the purpose of it, and it's not doing it, you want to know that so you can ensure that, you know, you're selling the right equipment or providing the right, you know, assistance. Like I said, it maybe you may use a different methodology. You may you have different types of indicators, but just let's you know have some way of, of, of assessing whether we're being effective or not. So I, I guess I, I really don't understand the pushback that we've been getting. My question is more about moving forward and painting your picture of where development aid is coming from. It's really interesting. Um, but sort of now that we see what's you know the flow sized. Congress we have versus the administration, where does the aid go from here? Do we look to the private sector? Do we keep it with the administration or you know, keep it in Congress and try to wait for the political issues to kind of get sorted out with all the things we're dealing with now? So where do we go from here? That's kind of a loaded question, I think, but. No, I mean, I think we have to, we have to look in a few directions. The first is to be working with USAID and the administration so that internally they're making the programs the best that they can. And I, you know, I, I have to hand it to Administrator Shah. Um, you know, I think he's really been trying to bring that agency into the 21st century and he, you know, um, has really, um, you know, gets what a lot of the problems are and is, is trying to improve them. You know, there's certainly more things that can be done. So continuing the internal process you know, is, is the first part. I think that they also recognize the importance on working on these things with the private sector, with the NGOs, um, and realizing how small a part of the picture ODA, official development assistance, is when you look at the big picture of development and resources for development. So I think the, the other part of that is, is, is starting to take a look at the other resources that are available besides ODA, um, whether you're talking about remittances <coughs> or um, you know, private investment or one issue that's kind of near and dear to my heart is the illicit uh, financial flows, which is how much money is leaving development world, developing world um, through illegal channels um, that could have been used for investment in so there's a lot of these other places that you can start to look while, you know, Congress is all wrapped up in hot sun and not uh, legislation. Anybody else? Yeah. I have a question. Um, you mentioned that the institutions that were set up during SEED and FCC and all that, um, are sort of established to circumvent the 1961 Act, and I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to how that process happens. So the two institutions that were set up in Poland and Hungary, like how exactly those um, funds actually circumvent 1961. Okay. It, it actually circumvents um, USAID specifically. And, uh, you know, to be fair, when the, the, the Berlin Wall fell and the Soviet Union um, broke apart, USA didn't have any missions in any of these places. These were places that USA had never worked, and um, the kinds of financial and development challenges they were facing were fundamentally different than 
or they, we thought them to be fundamentally different than the kinds of challenges that we were facing in places like, you know, Ethiopia and Congo. And it was just a different environment. So um, USA wasn't really very well prepared to jump in and address the new kinds of situations that were there. Um, so instead of building that capacity within USAID, the, the Seed and Freedom Support Act created coordinators at the State Department. And these State Department coordinators basically were like, um, you know, bureaus for USAID that handled aid to, to these countries. And they, um, they controlled the funding, they hired the people, um, they, USAID still ended up carrying out a lot of the programs, but under the direction of the State Department, which was a very different model than we had in the earlier. Um, then, obviously, NCC set up a new home new agency. PEPFAR, again, set up this bureaucracy within the State Department. So it was all, you know, nobody kind of trusted USAID to handle these things, and they, they set up the even though USAID ended up doing much of the work for a lot of these things, it was all being managed, administered directly outside of USAID. I have a question. Um, you mentioned in reforming of aid, avoiding the stovepipe mm -hmm. dilemma. <coughs> My question is, as we enter the institutions that are already functioning in that format, um, how do you see practically avoiding those pitfalls that come from not communicating and staying separate? You know, I think that USAID is doing a much better job um, by having strategies for all the sectors that, you know, bring in, you know, if you're doing the Feed the Future and you're having people from the environment and the health and the water and everybody's kind of together so there, there is definitely more coordination and more thought about how you know gender in, you know affects the environment and democracy affects you know food security and, and that kind of thing um, a lot of the stovepiping is still about congressional earmarks which continue in effect through the, um, the foreign uh, operations appropriation so foreign aid is still appropriated just not authorized the problem I mean I think people still feel the need to make those um, to make those earmarks because Congress has different priorities than than USAID does, and um, you know, feeling that certain certain issues like education, like environment, would be sort of just abandoned by USAID if Congress didn't earmark money for them. Um, you know, it, it's a very tough problem, and it was a very that was, I think that was the hardest issue that we dealt with in foreign aid reform um, because we couldn't get the NGOs to agree on, on how, to, how to deal with this. I basically laid out a challenge for everybody. How much of our development assistance should be for country-based strategies where we work with the countries to decide what their priorities are and where they wanna um, focus their attention? And how much should be for sectors that are decided in Washington, health, education, you know, water, so forth, um, microenterprise, and, um, you know, what would be a good way to divide that? Because the, we do recognize that countries don't always 
um, focus their own attention on things that we know to be problems. And if you think of you know, something like gender, for instance, there's a lot of countries that don't want to deal with it, but we know that if you don't um, have a, a lot of uh, kind of gender focus on what you're doing, that the other the, the programs aren't going to be as effective. So you want to have some money that you can focus on the problems and issues that we know are important, even if countries themselves don't. Nobody could, you know, nobody could agree on what that sort of split should be. So, you know, I don't know if there's a good answer to this right now. I mean, um, the money is still stovepiped, but hopefully the strategies and the programs themselves are more integrated, at least in the, the lenses that, you know, they look at. Could I just follow up with, with one question, watching this as I a few years ago helped set up the Feed the Future program. And when you deal with Congress, you're dealing with appropriations committees, foreign affairs committees, the agriculture committees, and sort of your thoughts, uh, I see from dealing with foreign assistance from the executive branch, watching the, the various committees not talking to each other, and that maybe a little reorganization of of uh, the committee structure, which I think is probably not a starter, but it is, is contributes to the dilemma of, of an issue like foreign assistance that, that spans a whole bunch of committees and then even more subcommittees. Yeah, the committee jurisdiction is a mess and it absolutely contributes to this problem. Um, you know, for instance, food aid is completely separate from the rest of foreign assistance and from food security. <coughs> handled by the agriculture committees who aren't interested in global development. It's just not part of their, you know, what they do. Um, on the House Foreign Affairs Committee side, we have um, shared jurisdiction with the House Agriculture Committee over food aid. The Senate Foreign Relations Committee has no jurisdiction over food aid. Um, on the multilateral development thing, obviously you want to have your bilateral aid and your multilateral aid kind of joined up and headed in the same directions. The MDBs are in the jurisdiction of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, but not at all with the House Foreign Affairs Committee. It's with the House Finance Committee. Um, you've got, so the jurisdictions of the authorizers are also not matching up with the appropriators. There's things that are in the appropriations bills that are not in our jurors, the authorizing jurisdictions and vice versa. And then in addition, you've got all these other bills and committees that are doing things like, um, you know, um, the DOD is increasingly involved in doing foreign assistance programs and so armed services and the, um, you know, the, the defense appropriators. We now have these committees um, on Homeland Security and Oversight, which also get involved in these. And so there's way too many cooks in the kitchen. The jurisdictions uh, don't make any sense. And it's another one of those like Gordian knots that you can't really unravel because there's too many people invested in the system the way that it is. And there have been many, many attempts at um, committee reorganization on Capitol Hill and those have all hit the dust too. So I, I think it's worth trying to maybe adjust some of these things at the margins. I would love to see a system where, say, you know, the budget um, had a function 150, 
everything in flood function 150 was foreign affairs and foreign relations and foreign ops and foreign ops and you know that would be a good starting point but I I don't know if that's in the cards anybody wants to work on that you know be my guest again that would be <laughs> Are you choosing? Yeah, I just did. Oh, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Me here. Okay. Pick um, one. Yeah. Pick one. Whoever starts first. Thank you, uh, thank you for that very interesting history lesson. There were details in there that you and I wasn't aware of. Um, but uh, to use your metaphor, with every good tragedy, there's a moral to the story. Um, what would you say is the moral to the story of each of those three distinct acts and periods? Uh, you know, my college uh, application question. <laughs> um, so, you know, the first act is pretty simple. That you know, foreign aid does not have to be a partisan issue. It Congress is capable of working together on these things, and with good leadership, you know, the process can work. Um, so, you know, that's just showing that it, you know it is possible, or it was. Possible. The second act of um, you know the doomed reform effort was the moral was what I said that you have to have you have to have a vehicle ready for when the window opens and that's really that was how I looked at it the whole time I was working on it this time because um, even from the beginning nobody gave a huge chance of success to rewriting the foreign system act at, at this time. I mean, everybody could look and see what was going on in Congress and not thinking that this is going to be the time. You know, nobody looked and said the stars are all aligned for more But um, you, you don't know when the time is going to be right. And I would just say if you look at um, immigration reform, which, you know, six months ago nobody was even talking about, it was completely off the table, and then all of a sudden, whoa, okay, now. Now it's the time, and we've got to hurry up and do it. There was a very small window after, you know, the, the shootings where all of a sudden, you know, gun control was something that we could talk about. Unfortunately, that window was maybe a month that closed. But so, and I think that might have turned out differently if the president had had um, legislation on Congress's desk in December instead of in February. But whatever. Um, so what we have now is a, a piece of legislation which is not perfect, definitely needs work, but it's a starting point for the next time the window opens. And so, you know, the groundwork is done and I would, I would encourage people to not kind of ignore it and put it on the shelf, but keep it as a living document so that when that window does open, there is something that's ready to go. So, somewhat broad, but in your career and the various jobs you've held, what have been the most important moments for you in terms of learning experiences and building your career and projects you've worked on or positions you've held that were sort of aha moments or changed your perspective or made you more effective at your jobs? Um, the two years that I spent at USA were a real eye-opener and extremely helpful to me because, you know, on Capitol Hill you write the laws, but the truth is you don't really know what you're doing. And you don't really know how they're going to 
was something that was created by Brian Atwood at the time that we were talking about foreign aid reform in the 90s. And when he proposed it, I opposed it. Thought it was just a big slush fund and um, it didn't include it in our reform bill. And um, anyway, it was it was fight. But you were the one. I was the one. Um, <laughs> But then, I, you know, when I was ready to leave um, the Senate, I knew I wanted to do something in conflict prevention and resolution, and I went around town asking people, you know, who was doing the best job and where were the best programs, and it got around to OTI. So I kind of changed my view, and I went there as the deputy director, and I spent um, two years really doing program, you know, implementation seeing how the system actually worked and you know what the sort of internal bureaucratic requirements were and, and Bill was my boss then. Yeah he was <laughs> um, was was a real eye opener and I think it made me a much better Capitol Hill staffer because I understood better the impacts of some of the things that um, that I was writing. Um, you know I you can find high points, you know, there's something I learned in, in, in every job that I had. Um, even, you know, being a, a young research assistant on Capitol Hill, um, you know, I, I thought, I came to Capitol Hill because I thought that that was the place I was going to make the biggest difference. And I was somebody who was kind of raring to go and wanting to change the world. And I got, um, I got very disillusioned very quickly. Well, um, I'm not making any difference here. The, the biggest change I could make would be to shape the minds of young people. So that's why I decided to go back to graduate school and get my PhD because I thought I was going to be a professor. And so I went back and I did John Hopkins at the, the PhD program in Baltimore and I started teaching. And um, I really hated teaching. <laughs> <laughs> And the reason I hated it is because I felt like everybody it was all about, they only cared about what grade they got. And they were just regurgitating information back in hopes of getting a good, you know, grade instead of really kind of grappling with the issues and thinking about these things. And I, it, I just, I hated dealing with grades. And, um, so I realized that I wasn't going to make any difference that way either. So, <laughs> <laughs> At each stage, you know, you look for the, the, the point where you can make a difference. I've been sitting, you know, away from politics, but it's really good to end on a, on a hopeful note. And for young people, as you're saying, to visualize the system as a system, and you're upstream in the politics and working on the coordination aspects and, and getting all the ducks lined up. But if you follow the money through, USAID and then in turn through the international NGOs and then it hits the country, country itself as a strategy. And then that the politics of that and getting donor coordination at that level, and then in turn money flowing into communities. Um, if you follow the money and if you're if you're young in your career, you've got to you kind of have to, I would say, uh, see uh, the endpoint also and then work and then decide where in the system you can work. Um, if not because the conclusion Sad conclusion, I think, can always be that the system is broken and it's unfixable. But I think if we look at it as a system, 
potentially um, positive efforts. Spaces can be opened up with an impact to me. Um, that's what I want to do for you today because I'm spending most of my career like in China or in Thailand where we deal with international public health working with FPR programs using the chief of party. And there's a lot of politics, but politics is important also and it's got to work in the donor side as well as I mean, look, I think good things happen despite the system, and good things happen also because of the system. And even though, you know, working in politics, you don't always see the end point of what you do. I think most of the things that I did that I feel good about were actually stopping bad things from happening, um, preventing an arms sale that was going to be used to violate somebody's human rights, or getting more money for a good program. So. You know, it, it does have an impact at the end, but it's, it, sometimes it's really hard, you know, to see. Anyone have one last question? No? Please join me in thanking Diane for being here.